You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a senior economist and market strategist at Deutsche Bank and a lecturer at Harvard University, as well as a recognized expert in financial technology. In addition to designing her own financial technologies course at Harvard, she speaks extensively about the payment systems, blockchains, and digital currencies at conferences and seminars. Holding a PhD from ENS, her latest book is titled Democratizing Finance, The Radical Promise of Fintech. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Marianne Labor. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Eddie. Many thanks for the lovely introduction and very glad to discuss it with you today. So firstly, as always, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background and your research. Yeah, of course. So actually, I have a dual uh, job. So part of my job uh, is actually to work at Deutsche Bank as a macro strategist. And I'm also like a lecturer in economics and finance at Harvard University. Uh, and to briefly introduce my background, I completed my undergraduate degree in quantitative maths and econometrics at the University Paris-Dauphine. Uh, and then I did a master in European politics and international relations at the London School of Economics. And after uh, my time uh, actually at um, at LSE, it was when exactly when Lehman crashed, I was looking for a job. And I ended up uh, starting my journey at the Bureau of European Policy Advisor, which uh, advised the president of the European European Commission. Uh, then I worked as an economist at Barclays, uh, and then I moved to the Central Bank of Luxembourg, and I was uh, also a fellow researcher at uh, the International Monetary Fund, the, the IMF. And after uh, my PhD, uh, I ended up lecturing in the economics department at Harvard. Uh, and while working at Harvard was uh, an unplanned way to follow my partner in the US, uh, it ended up being one of my most interesting years, actually, and a great platform to grow. So I ended up authoring three books. Uh, I won several awards for my research. Uh, and actually, it's where uh, I ended up writing this book, Democratizing Finance, that has been published uh, last April. Yeah, congratulations on the publication of, of your new book. We've we've gone through it and some some really interesting content in there. Um, so, like you said, your your latest book is titled "Democratizing Finance: The Radical Promise of FinTech." So, in the description, you write that quote: "Financial technology has enabled more people with fewer resources in more places around the world to take advantage of banking, insurance, credit, investment, and other financial services." Um, you defend that by arguing that these changes are only the tip of the iceberg. A much broader revolution is underway. If steered correctly, it, it will lead to huge and beneficial social change. So I wanted to start by asking you about this premise and asking you to walk us through what huge and beneficial change actually looks like. Yeah, that's a good question. So basically, what, what we are, we have seen uh, over the past few decades, digital technology has transformed finance. Uh, financial technology has enabled more people with fewer resources uh, in more places around the world to take advantage of banking, insurance, credit, investment, and other financial services. So what we say in the book, uh, we argue that these changes are only the tip of the iceberg, as you mentioned, and a much broader revolution is underway uh, that if if steered correctly, uh, will lead to huge and beneficial social change. And 
We describe as well in the book uh, the genesis of recent financial innovations and how they have helped consumers in rich but also in poor countries, uh, like by reducing cost, increasing accessibility, uh, improving convenience, and uh, increasing efficiency. So we, we try, we really try to connect the dots uh, between early innovations in financial services and the wider revolution uh, unfolding today. And, and changes uh, may disrupt traditional financial services, especially in banking, but they may also help us address major social changes. Uh, I'm thinking about opening new career paths for millennials, uh, transforming government services, expanding the gig economy in developed markets, for, for just, just to give you some examples. So, so again, uh, fintech would lead to economic infrastructure developments uh, in rural area and could uh, help facilitating emerging social security and uh, healthcare system in uh, in these developing countries. So we really try to make like this case, uh, this book with a rich combination of economic theory and case studies. So we have included micro analysis of the effect of fintech innovations on individuals uh, and as well the macroeconomic perspectives and fintech's uh, impact on societies. Okay, so in the book, there's a chapter called Millennials, the Subprime Generation. So as you say, millennials have faced the economic brunt of, of two major downturns, first in 2008 and then recently in the COVID pandemic. So can you tell us a bit about what the effect of this has been and how developments of financial technologies might have an impact? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. And I actually, uh, so there are a couple of effects uh, that, that we have mentioned for, for the 2007-8 financial crisis. And there are like over effects that we are not uh, still aware of the COVID-19, given that uh, it, it's not over yet and we don't have enough time to realize the major changes. So in terms of effect, uh, I, I, I would uh, like to mention that, for example, job opportunity. Uh, when I was uh, on the job market, when Lehman crashed during the financial crisis, job opportunity were uh, definitely reduced. There was a lack of opportunity. Uh, investment opportunity as well. Uh, it's another one. For example, if we think about our parents, our grandparents, inflation was high, uh, economic growth was high. So um, they make, obviously, uh, more lucrative investment uh, with housing than what we are doing now uh, these days for millennials, given that housing prices are very high um, so far and not, not affordable. Uh, for example, the return on capital is, is much higher uh, than wages, as Piketty mentioned. And in terms of effect, I would uh, as well highlight the psychology effect. Uh, and, and it's even like probably more true uh, for the COVID than uh, during the 2007-8 uh, financial crisis, where uh, psychology, actually, we were confined uh, at home. So basically, millennials, students were not able uh, to enjoy university as, as, as we did, our generation did, actually, a few years ago. Um, and there was like a lot of financial stress, uh, quite a big uh, burden in terms of psychology. And to come back on your question about uh, finance, uh, financial technology and innovation, I think it's it's where we are uh, experiencing big crises, like uh, again, the financial crisis or the COVID, that you have a lot of uh, innovations. It's true for fintech, but it's also true for the other sectors. And if you think about the financial crisis, what happened, uh, it's actually where uh, Bitcoin emerged, uh, cryptocurrency really actually took off um, 
took off following the, the financial crisis. Uh, blockchain as well emerged, uh, given that it's the technology used uh, for cryptocurrency. And if we look at uh, the COVID, uh, the pandemic, so again, it, it's very early to say which technology already emerged and which one will be successful or not in, in, in the next five, 10 years. But what we have seen is like uh, the rise of e-commerce. E-commerce jumped by 30% compared to the pre-COVID level. Uh, telework is much more um, efficient, convenient. And now uh, we have like probably broader internet connection. Uh, we are more equipped at home to work efficiently. Uh, AI, uh, artificial intelligence is something that uh, really increases I would say in terms of automation. Um, and so this is what, what we are seeing so far uh, amongst uh, other, other innovations. But uh, again, I'm, I'm sure uh, the next innovation, big innovation emerges and we will only uh, realize that in a few years. It's still early to say that. Okay, so next I wanted to ask about the role of financial technologies in developing countries, which are often very reliant on cash with high levels of financial exclusion. So many countries across Africa and Asia have adopted technologies like digital payment apps and other e-commerce platforms. However, those those technologies are still inherently dependent on the conventional banking system. So, Dr. Labor, can you tell us a bit more about some of the, the distinct financial problems in the developing world and what impact fintech might have? Yeah, so, so you're, you're absolutely true. And what I found also very fascinating and interesting is like emerging countries uh, tend to lead in terms of payment innovation. I mean, very, if, if, for example, I take the case of the US, Europe and China. Uh, China started paying digitally like early 2000. Uh, I got my first uh, contactless card in the UK in 2009, and I got my first contactless card uh, in the US uh, what, a year ago. So this is something, uh, payment, fintech, uh, where I, I would consider uh, emerging economies to lead the market. Uh, so to come back on, on China, so you mentioned Asia, so let's talk about China. Uh, China is, is, is really like leading in terms of digital payment, uh, payment via smartphone, uh, Alipay, WeChat Pay, a lot of Chinese people are paying via this, uh, these two, these two apps. Uh, and in China, that's, that's, I mean, the number of Chinese people who are paying, uh, via digital pay payment, uh, it's pretty high. It's around like three quarters. So it's extremely high for, by comparison to any other countries in the world. And it's the world's largest mobile payment market. Uh, and it's also the leader in peer-to-peer -peer payment in, in which people are able to pay uh, each other by text. Uh, you, you also mentioned Africa. And uh, yeah, let me come back on two different examples in Africa that I found very interesting and actually that uh, that, that we describe in the book. Uh, the first one uh, is M-Pesa in Kenya. So basically with M-Pesa, uh, customers can register for the service at authorized agents. Uh, it's often small mobile phone stores or other retailers such as barbers, butchers, uh, bakers, uh, and then they deposit cash uh, in exchange of electronic money. So customers can send uh, money to their family or friends through for the country. So it was for M-Pesa. Second innovation that is, uh, that, that, that is quite also fascinating to look at, um, that we describe is Gramen Bank, Gramen Fund. Uh, so Gramen Bank, uh, is a microfinance organization and community development bank uh, funded in uh, Bangladesh. And Gramen basically converts deposits made in villages uh, into loans for the more needy in, in the village. And it targets uh, the poorest uh, of the poor uh, with a particular emphasis on uh, women, 
uh, will receive uh, around 95% of the bank's loans. So uh, yeah, again, um, uh, what we are doing in the book uh, is to split the book between two uh, different parts. Uh, first part, uh, we are talking about emerging countries. Second part, we are talking uh, about advanced economies. Uh, we try to understand uh, what uh, what are the main uh, fintech innovation and what actually they address exactly in this uh, particular region. Yeah, that is that is an interesting sort of observation or, or case study with emerging economies. It is it is quite curious that they are the ones that have transitioned earliest to uh, digital payments. Um, but then then the inherent problem there is still that those those digital payment systems are dependent on the underlying banking infrastructure, which tends to be more volatile, more unstable in developing countries. Right. So, I mean. If you think about, say, for example, um, India, um, most um, most of the banks are still state owned, um, and so for that reason, I mean, there there tends to be a lot of a lot of volatility. Um, I, I think that's not just unique to to that one part of the world, though. Um, in, in a lot of emerging countries, um, you know, the the financial systems tend to be more more um, vulnerable, more volatile, more um, yeah, not not as stable as the ones in advanced economies, and so. Um, do you think f- moving forward, what, what sort of, uh, impact might fintech have? Is there a chance to sort of replace the, the banking infrastructure altogether or are all the innovations that we're going to see like mobile money still going to depend on people having bank accounts with conventional banks? I, I think it's a mix of both. Uh, and actually, if you look at what is happening in the public sector versus private sector, uh, first, you, you're right. We need uh, basic uh, infrastructure. Uh, government actually need to build the, the infrastructure because private companies are unlikely to build them. Uh, and, and to have a reliable, uh, good uh, internet connection is, is key uh, in, for many countries and, and even for advanced economies. I mean, it's, it's something that, that is key that we need. We need to have digital infrastructure uh, and that, that's, that's very important. Uh, r- regarding your point about like uh, what we think in terms of private innovation, public innovation and so on. And I, and I think it's a mix. Um, I mean, the public sector should uh, work hand in hand uh, with the government sector and, and it has been done in, in, in few countries. For example, if you, if you think about uh, India, uh, ADA, uh, the government actually uh, managed to build a database for over 1 billion people. Um, and to store their ID, to store like uh, healthcare data and so on, 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 on actually like a digital system. Uh, it has not been done only by the government, but it has been uh, done hand in hand with uh, the private sector. Uh, very similar, uh, if you talk about payments specifically, uh, for example, cent- central banks uh, are looking at digitalizing uh, cash. Uh, so we call it central bank digital currency. Uh, they have been starting on this topic, and this is uh, something which is not going to, to replace uh, bank uh, money, but this is something that uh, the, where the public sector is working hand in hand with uh, the private sector. Okay, so next I wanted to ask you about this chapter in the book called Towards a Cashless Society. So the idea of a cashless society has been something of a controversial one. So on the one hand, you have people like Brett Scott arguing that when you use a card, 
Um, the process requires the involvement of several layers of intermediaries interacting through data centers in different parts of the world. All of them extract fees and harvest data through the transaction, whereas cash allows for an instant final settlement of a transaction peer-to-peer with no fees or no user data being generated. Um, on the other hand, there is a substantial convenience um, improvement aspect to a cashless society, among um, other benefits. You know, I, I think um, you know you you can't really steal uh, digital payments if it's if the um, if it's secure enough. Um, you know, cash, on the other hand, is very easy um, for it to be stolen. Um, I think most of us are already living somewhat cashless lives. I mean, I can't I can't remember the last time I used cash. So can you can you tell us a bit about your um, take on our, our progression as a society towards towards cashless? Yeah, of of course. I mean, I I was laughing when you mentioned you didn't know when what time you, you when was the last time you used cash because I, I I have the same feeling I don't remember either. Um, but I think it's very important to distinguish between uh, cash uh, as a mean of payment and cash uh, as a store value. And if we look at first uh, cash as a store value, uh, cash in circulation has uh, nearly doubled over the past 20 years. Uh, if I take, for example, the US, uh, the UK, the Eurozone, uh, and Japan. Uh, and this is mostly driven uh, by large banknotes. It's not true in, in all the countries, but again, cash in circulation is, is, is very high. Um, it's not increasing in all the countries, but uh, it's something which remains very, very, at a very high level. And during the three months prior to, to May 2020, so at the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, the increase of banknotes in circulation in the Eurozone uh, reached a record high. So uh, again, um, I, I don't think this is the end of cash. Uh, I, I, cash in circulation is still incre- increasing. Uh, and this is due uh, to the fact that people are withdrawing cash uh, and cash is seen as uh, a safe haven to store value, and especially uh, during crisis. So having said that, uh, I talked about cash uh, as a store value, but if we look at uh, cash as a mean of payment, the the picture is slightly different. So cash has been uh, effectively losing ground as a payment method uh, over the past two, three years. And uh, there is a clear shift uh, towards a digital cashless society, uh, as you mentioned. And this is clear that uh, the COVID pandemic uh, has clearly accelerated uh, the pace by probably like three, five years uh, of what we wouldn't have uh, seen uh, without uh, the pandemic. But this is something uh, which that we can see uh, it in terms of trend. So, for example, if I take the case of, of Sweden, uh, where cash in circulation represents only 1% of GDP, uh, it's probably the country which will become uh, the first uh, a cashless society. I mean, similarly, uh, if we look at uh, another country, I would, I would mention China. Uh, as I said before, we, we have like more than three quarters of Chinese people which are using digital payment over cash. Uh, so cash is uh, slightly um, on the verge uh, to decrease, at least again, as as a mean of payment. Uh, and that's probably why uh, you might have heard that more and more government central banks are looking at uh, some way to digitalize cash. Um, and they have been looking at central bank digital currency actually to, to tackle the fact that cash, uh, physical cash, uh, it has been declining uh, over time. So just to give you some ideas about like uh, a, a 
a CBDC because that, that, that's a big point, uh, that, that you mentioned in terms of cashless society. Uh, the question is probably no longer, uh, if, but when uh, we will have digital cash. Uh, today we have around 90% of central banks which are developing a central bank digital currency. Uh, around 60% uh, are experimenting or at the proof of concept. Uh, and uh, we have few actually uh, countries which have already uh, launched uh, their CBDC. So I'm thinking about the Bahamas, uh, Eastern Caribbean, uh, Nigeria, Jamaica, and uh, China as well, uh, which which is um, which we can consider as life. And very interestingly, uh, so 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 you 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 mentioned that China was uh, pretty well advanced in terms of digital payment, and China has been working uh, on a CBDC since 2014. Uh, it was the, the the first country in the world uh, to work uh, on 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 this topic. So again, I think yes, we 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 are moving uh, towards a society where people pay less and less uh, via cash. And uh, where CBDC uh, is set to progressively replace cash, uh, but cash uh, will clearly still be around for, for many years uh, because we have, uh, as we talked before, many uh, people who are unbanked and who are relying uh, heavily on, on physical cash as well. Okay, um, but then I, I think one of the things that I'm, I'm sort of skeptical of when thinking about central bank digital currencies, maybe, I mean, if, if you're one of those people who lives in a, a country like the US, um, you know, one of the Western European countries, perhaps you're, um, you know, you, you have enough trust in your institutions, you have enough trust in the stability of the central bank to, to use their digital currency. Um, but what about for, for those people, um, that, that live in countries, you know, where, um, for example, racial discrimination, political discrimination, um, those sorts of things can trap people out of the, the official, um, system, you know, without, without cash, if they're, you know, if they're excluded, um, from, from the banking system, um, or, you know, excluded from society in some way, there's, there's a lot of parts of the world where you, you do have to be wary of that. Um, so do you think there is, there is a downside to this sort of, um, you know, widespread proliferation of, of central bank digital currencies? I, I wouldn't say so and I don't think so, but you're absolutely right that there are some barriers, uh, that, 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 that should be addressed. Uh, you have difference in terms of countries, in terms of, uh, of politics, uh, in terms of, uh, yeah, political goals, uh, from cultural privacy perspective, uh, that, that actually that, uh, that will push, uh, some countries to lead the race in terms of CBDC compared to, to others. And, um, and, and yes, I mean, when you have like some governments or some countries which are unstable, um, and, and first, I'm not sure like these countries, uh, the key priority for these countries is to launch uh, their CBDC. Uh, but for those, yes, I mean, I mean, you, you can always question if consumers uh, will uh, adopt that. Uh, and on your point about like, Adoption, um, I, I think this is a fair point to mention, but it's true for, for those countries you mentioned, but it's also true even like for, for, for large countries, large advanced countries, which don't have this, this issue. Um, because for example, if I take the case of, of, of the US, uh, of Europe, uh, we are heavily relying uh, on payment via cards, uh, credit cards, debit cards. And I'm not sure it's more convenient to pay with a CBDC, uh, river than, than a card. So, why would people switch uh, if they don't uh, see like a big improvement uh, and if they don't see like more convenience uh, to switch? 
Right. Um, obviously, uh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So next I wanted to sort of switch gears and talk a little bit about cryptocurrency. Um, so this is, this is again, a, a bit of a controversial topic, um, at the moment with the recent price crash. So, um, you know, on, on the one hand, you have people like Warren Buffett arguing, um, cryptocurrencies have no value. They don't produce anything. Um, the only thing that you have is, is the hope that somebody else will come along and, and pay you more for them later on. But then that person's got the problem in terms of value zero. So that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, you have on the one hand, people like Warren Buffett who argue that. And then, you know, on, on the other side, um, you have people like Omid Malakin who, who raised the point, um, that there are, um, you know, unstable countries, unstable currencies, um, you know, unstable, unstable or, you know, politically motivated central banks um, where where there's a lot of financial exclusion. And so for, for those people, a decentralized currency that is virtually unhackable, um, it's not influen- um, you know, influenceable by the, the central bank or the government or political forces, those things have an inherent value proposition. So what role do you think cryptocurrencies have to play in the future financial world? I know it's a bit of a broad question, but... Yeah, so, so, so yeah, I mean... Few things uh, to to address in your question. That that's a very big question. But first, we have two countries uh, in which uh, Bitcoin is legal tender. It's El Salvador and it's uh, Central African Republic. Um, if we take the case of El Salvador, given that El Salvador celebrated the the, the first anniversary uh, last September, a few years a few, few days ago. Uh, I wouldn't say it has been a real success uh, in terms of financial inclusion, remittances. Uh, I mean, it has not really improved. Uh, and if you look at the investment that the government made uh, for, for for paying uh, for buying Bitcoin, actually the the investment made uh, is now worth uh, half of what of what we made. So I wouldn't say it has been like uh, quite significant in terms of improvement. And if you look at consumer adoption, it, it's pretty low actually. Uh, very few people uh, have been using Bitcoin. So again, I don't think it has uh, significantly improved, even if uh, you, you could understand they have some some reason actually to move in uh, in that direction. But if we look at the broader picture, uh, collectively, cryptocurrencies still comprise uh, a tiny part of financial markets. Uh, Bitcoin's market cap is uh, around these days 370 billion. Uh, and if we want to compare Bitcoin uh, to actually the top uh, companies, it will put the Bitcoin market cap uh, among the world's 15 largest companies uh, in the world. So this is uh, very large, uh, and, and that's probably why uh, cryptocurrency can no longer be ignored at this point, because uh, in terms of market cap, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty significant. So again, a tiny part of financial markets, but a big part in terms of uh, the market cap. Uh, today, we have around uh, 40,000 uh, existing cryptocurrency, uh, but it's not like homogeneous groups. So you cannot compare like the 14,000 uh, cryptocurrency with uh, one another. You have like uh, very big differences among them. Uh, some uh, are having a real useful application and others uh, are acting more uh, as fragile speculative plays. So, I mean, for example, if you take um, Ethereum, you have like a lot of DeFi, uh, decentralized finance application, 
while for others, uh, you have uh, less applications. Uh, in terms of traceability as well, it's very different. So you can, uh, we, we, I mean, you can. The government can now trace a Bitcoin transaction, even if it's a pseudonymous transaction, it's possible to do it at this stage. Uh, while if you take some cryptocurrency like Zcash, Monero, uh, it's very hard uh, to, for governments to trace them. So you have like very big differences uh, among crypto and uh, we shouldn't put them uh, all in all in, um, in the same basket. In terms of perspective, again, I, I think it's important to look at uh, what happened over history. Uh, I mean, many people comment on the market gap, uh, on the price of Bitcoin, which is pretty low these days. But if we look uh, a little bit beyond uh, the day-to-day uh, -day, uh, volatility, in, in 2017, the, the value of one Bitcoin uh, was around $1,000. Um, five years ago, uh, it was around six thousand, seven thousand dollars. So today, it's 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 around like twenty thousand dollars. So it's still, uh, of course, far be far below that uh, the peak that we reached uh, last year in November, around like say sixty-eight thousand. But uh, it it's still um, it's it's still higher than what we had uh, five years ago or, or two years ago. And what we have seen in terms of uh, of, uh, of the environment, uh, last year, uh, actually, we, we had like a lot of uh, liquidity in the market. Uh, so we drove price uh, of uh, speculative asset, but equity of the equity market, NASDAQ, SP500, and all of the main markets uh, very high. And now we are seeing uh, exactly the opposite. So we live with uh, an uncertain economic outlook. Uh, we have high uh, inflation, um, rate hike uh, expectations, uh, again, looking ahead. Uh, we have like quantitative tightening. Uh, we have like a lot of geopolitical uncertainty. Uh, so I, I, I would be surprised if uh, prices continue to, to, to not be volatile and continue to increase given the uncertainty that we have in the market. Okay. Um, and so finally, I wanted to, to talk a bit about the policy side to some of the things that you talk about in the book. So as I mentioned at the start, you stated in the introduction that, quote, a much broader revolution is underway that, if steered correctly, will lead to huge and beneficial social change. So it's that, that steered correctly phrase that I'm curious about. So what, what would you urge policymakers and legislators around the world to do in order to ensure that they are, as you say, quote unquote, steering correctly? Yeah, so, so basically the, the, the issue with fintech is uh, in general regulation is uh, far uh, lagging behind of innovation. Uh, and it's always a trade-off uh, between uh, innovation on one side and regulation that uh, kind of regulate um, innovation. And, um, and, and regulators need to be very careful because uh, many fintechs are, are not, uh, not regulated or not enough regulated. And for example, if I take the case of cryptocurrency, uh, they are global, uh, cross-border, uh, popular, they represent a systemic risk uh, to government and central banks, are the lenders of, of last resort. Uh, we sh we, we've seen recently that uh, stablecoin, which, which, which should be by definition stable, uh, and they were sold as uh, offering the hope of more stability in the cryptocurrency. 
market that it has not worked uh, out well. Uh, I'm thinking about Terra USD, uh, which was supposed to have a ratio of one to one uh, to the dollar. I mean, it, it, it crashed. It didn't recover yet. Uh, so this proved to be a catalyst for, for a broader cryptocurrency sell-off. So regulators uh, need to be uh, close. I mean, need to closely monitor what is happening in the crypto space, uh, in, in stablecoin as well, and uh, on, on, on DeFi as well as on finance and all these uh, fintech innovations. All right. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Labor. Thank you very much, Eddie. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.